Let's pray. Great and wonderful God, Almighty Father, we thank you for your holiness, your righteousness, your majesty and might. Come to us powerfully in your word this morning, working in us an ever greater faith in Christ Jesus. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week we learned a little bit about Elijah, not so much about him personally, because there's not much backstory regarding Elijah, but we certainly learned a lot about the time and culture in which he lived. It was an evil and wicked time, much apostasy, turning away from God, and there were many connections to our current day and age. But, into cultures such as this, into every, each and every culture, God has called those to stand up to the world's depravity, to call out the sins of the nation and turn them back to God. Elijah was such a man. God called him to stand in the face of adversity, even though there was a possibility of personal harm or even death to him. He was a prophet. He was a man who was willing to stand alone in the power of God. He was willing to stand against all the forces of the world's mighty and powerful because he stood in the presence of God. Hence today's uh, title for the message, Standing Alone in the Power of God. So last week we ended with the end of chapter 17. Today we're starting kind of in the middle of chapter 18. Let me give you a very brief synopsis of what occurred. So Elijah had prayed for the widow's son to be raised from the dead, and he was. Then the drought continued. And there was a severe drought and famine in the land of Samaria. Then the Lord told Elijah to go to King Ahab, wicked, evil King Ahab. And when he would go to Ahab, the Lord would send rain upon the earth and end the drought. So, Elijah goes to Ahab. They meet. And Elijah tells them to gather all of Israel to Mount Carmel, plus the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, the false prophets, 850 together. That's the context. So now let's go to our reading, and it is 1 Kings chapter 18, starting verse 20. So, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So, Mount Carmel. The scene is at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel actually is in a mountain. Is isn't a mountain? It's a very high 
ridge, about 12 miles long. If you're on the seaside, at the highest, it's like 1,700 feet above sea level. Where they were, the ridge would have been about 600 feet above them. Now, Mount Carmel, Carmel actually means, I want to make sure I get it right, it means orchard, garden, vineyard. And it just reflects this very fertile beauty of the hillside there. So it's a dramatic scene. If you ever want to take a look, go online, take a look, and you'll see pictures of this ridge of Mount Carmel. It's a very dramatic place for a very dramatic scene. So you have all of Israel gathered there, thousands of people, plus you have 850 false prophets, 450 of Baal, 400 of Asherah. And Elijah gives everyone a direct challenge. And he says this, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? So limping is an odd word. It can actually be translated to waver or to hesitate. It's meant to show that they're stuck between two different views. And when you are stuck between two, two different views, right? You hesitate. You don't necessarily go one way and you don't necessarily go another way. You limp between the two. You are wavering. There's a feebleness that is implied in here. And so thus we are seeing the difference between the nation and the false prophets who are limping, but Elijah who is standing strong. So you find this in today's world too, don't you? People limping between two views. People who say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus, but the world as well. I'm spiritual, but not religious. And so they keep wavering between these two things. Oh yes, Jesus seemed to be a good man, but what about Islam? What about Baha'i or Hinduism? And all of these other things. They want the power of God, but they deny the power of God at the exact same time. Now, this is no small thing when it comes to God. God condemns limping between two views, limping between two things. And especially for those who are deceiving and leading people astray, there are strong words that God has. Had, God has. Paul, in his letter to Titus, uh, he wrote this. So Titus chapter 1, I'm going to go with verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Elijah is issuing a challenge, and he is putting a line in the sand. He says this, If the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow him. This should remind you a little bit of what Joshua said to the Israelites. This is going to sound very familiar. From Joshua 24, I'm going to start with verse 15. 
And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorite in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Sounds familiar, right? This is a consistent message throughout Scripture. Listen, you have one choice and one choice only. Follow the Lord God or follow false gods. You can't go in between the two. You can't say, I'm a Yahweh Baal follower. Just as you can't say, I'm a Christian Buddhist. Or I'm a Chrislam. Or I'm a Christian Hinduist. However that might be. You understand that, right? That's limping between the two. But, now this is going to go a little closer to home. You can't have a hyphenated faith. And you can't have an identity hyphenated faith as well. Some people say, I'm an American Christian. Or, I'm a Republican Christian. Or, I'm a Democrat Christian. Or, I'm a Socialist Christian. Or, I'm a white Christian, or black Christian, or social justice Christian, or straight Christian, or gay Christian. Christ did not go to the cross, die for your sins, rise again, so that you could have a hyphenated faith. It is Christ and Christ alone. And Christ says, follow me. Follow me alone. You see, because I follow Christ, I do act in a certain way in the manner. But I am not a Republican Christian. I am not a Democratic Christian. I am none of that. I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ Jesus. This is the choice that we all have. And as you can see, that's the choice Elijah gave to the nation of Israel. And man, oh man, that's the choice today, isn't it? That's the choice today. So, Elijah, as opposed to all of the people who are limping, stands alone. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, even I, Sorry, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, here Elijah says he's the only prophet of the Lord left. This is some hyperbole, some exaggeration on Elijah's part, because indeed, there are a hundred other prophets of Yahweh who are hidden in the caves. So, it's not true that Elijah is the only one left, but it is true that he's the only one there that day who's facing Ahab and all of the other false prophets. Think of the courage, right? Think of the courage for one man to stand up before thousands and to stand up before the powerful, the mighty, and in essence say, you're wrong. How could Elijah ever stand up 
in the face of so many people and say, you're wrong. He could do that because truth is not dictated by numbers. Let me say it again. Truth is not dictated by numbers. Truth stands alone and remains true even if people should reject it. Listen, we live in a society where everything's done by polls, right? Are you sick of polls? I'm sick of polls. And you have leaders, you have everybody else saying, well, 63% of of Americans say this is the right view. Or 85% of scientists say this is the right view. And then everybody makes the false leap that if people believe it, it's true. That is a false comparison. It's a false conclusion. Truth remains true even if many people reject it. Elijah knew he was standing on God's word. God, the creator of everything, of heaven and earth, whose word is true no matter what. No matter if the world rejects it, his word remains true. Last week, we talked about Isaiah 55, verse 11. So shall my word that goes from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed for the thing in which I sent it. And then in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Last week, we said that the ultimate test of one's faith is to believe the word of the Lord in spite of the circumstances. I'm going to do a variation of that this week. The ultimate test of one's faith is to stand firm in His Word even if you have to stand alone. For me, personally, that's how I've grown in my faith this past year. I'm willing to stand alone even if everybody else says different. And here's what's the byproduct of coming to that point in my faith. Because I haven't always been like that. Really, I haven't. This past year has just grown. I've become more bold in my witness, just sharing. What's the worst? People are going to say no? So I share. Here's another byproduct. Freedom. Freedom in my faith. And here's a third byproduct. Joy. So I have the joy of the Lord because I'm standing and willing to stand alone. That's the journey. That's the journey we talk about here at Joy, to grow alive, to grow deep, and grow bold. And so for you today, part of it is, where are you on that journey? Are you willing to stand alone, even if the rest of the world says, you're wrong? You can say, no, I stand on the Word of God. So, Elijah gives this challenge, right? And the people have no response. They're silent in the face of his challenge. 
They're limping between two views. So Elijah says this to them, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you shall call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So Elijah is going to make this very clear. Whosoever God brings down fire is the true God. Why fire? I mean, you might think about that. Why fire? Why not some other miracle? Well, when you take a look at fire, fire is often depicted as the presence of God. You know, there's a lot of biblical passages about the throne of God in the presence of fire. There's fire and smoke. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. A pillar of fire led the Israelites by night. At one point, Mount Sinai is covered with clouds, smoke, and fire. Other passages describe God's anger against people with fire. Psalm 18, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. So there's a lot of imagery of fire in the presence of God. But if I were to leave you with one thing here, fire is a way, is a symbol of God's purity, purification of people, of His power and His holiness. So Elijah says, let God's fire come down and we will see who is the true God. So Elijah standing alone and the people limp desperately, calling out to their God. And they took the bull that was given them And they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. So here's the thing. The scene, right? They're all around this altar. And you think hundreds of those false prophets around the altar. And for hour upon hour, they're calling upon their God, Baal, but he doesn't answer them. This is very disturbing for them. You have to understand, Baal wasn't just a god of fertility or harvest. He was a god who was the king of gods. He would ride on the clouds. He was also a god of storms. So for Baal, this would have been a very small thing to send down fire upon their particular altar. But there was silence from their God. So in seeing their futility after hour upon hour, Elijah eggs them on. He mocks them. It says this, at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. 
either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Pretty harsh language, right? You know, the Bible does contain harsh language. We can't just gloss over that. Harsh language from men who God has called is often meant to waken people up, to get their attention. John the Baptist, who by the way, Jesus called Elijah. John the Baptist said this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, because people think that Jesus never had any harsh words. Jesus said to this, to the church of Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire. So that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. The shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. You see, in Scripture, harsh language from God and His messengers is a way to get people's attention so that they would repent and return to the Lord. It was to show them the futility of their ways. It wasn't just to pound them down. It wasn't just to win. So language, just to insult, because some of us want to take this liberty now. Well, if... Men of God use that language. I can certainly use that language today. No, 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 no. You don't get to do that. Because mostly, when that language is used today, there's no love behind it. What did Jesus say? He said, to those whom I love, I reprove. Harsh language to get people's attention may be necessary at some points, but it must be first grounded in love. If it's not first grounded in love, don't say anything. Shouldn't be used. If it is grounded in love, it might be uncomfortable for them to hear, but they might need to hear that anyway. So, Elijah says this, but it fell on deaf ears, right? Still didn't get their attention. So the prophets, they double their efforts. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after, the cust- after their custom 
with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. Think of the most pagan dance that you could ever think of. And they're cutting themselves on the arms, legs, uh, uh, places on their body, and their arms and legs are just dripping with blood, and it is surrounding the area. And they're still limping though, aren't they? See, when people are confronted with the reality that it really is a false god, they often don't say, well, okay, then I'll believe in the Lord. They limp between the two in greater desperation. And what we find in our culture today, there are a lot of people limping in ever greater desperation. So, when it's finally clear that Baal is not really real, Elijah, boldly standing in the power of God, speaks. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. You see, not only had Ahab and Jezebel been forcing people to worship Baal, and Asherah, and building altars to Baal and Asherah, they had also been tearing down altars that were made to Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. So there's a lot here. There's a great emphasis about altars, isn't it? But you think, well, what's the big deal? It's an altar. You have to know how important altars are throughout the Bible. There are 400 references to altars in the Bible. You see, what was an altar? An altar always represented a place of consecration. That there was an encounter with God. And with that encounter with God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Gideon, and more, they built altars and they dedicated themselves to the Lord for God had met them in that place. So it was a holy place. It was a consecrated place. So an altar commemorates God's presence, His grace and mercy to us. It was a place of worship. We have an altar. It is a place of consecration where we have dedicated ourselves to God. It is a place where God says He will meet us in word and in sacrament. This is not a stage. It's not even a platform. This is an altar. It is a holy, sacred place where we come into the presence of God and receive His grace and mercy. It is a place where we come and worship. That's the importance of an altar 
And so when Elijah rebuilt the altar, he was rebuilding what Ahab and Jezebel had torn down. He was building a place that would be consecrated unto God. He was building a place where worship to the one true God would happen. And by using 12 stones, these were the 12 stones of Israel, he was again calling Israel to come back in unity to the Lord. This is what the altar meant. So now around the altar, he pours, wa- he pours water on the altar, around the altar, so, and he does it three times so that everything is drenched and would not burn. And then we go to verse 36. It says, O Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And after this prayer, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. You see, this is the key. This is the main point of everything that happened that day. It wasn't to destroy people. It was that they may know the Lord as God. That you may know the Lord as God. That you have turned their hearts back. So it's God who turned their hearts back. It's God who came to them. It's God who gave them knowledge. It is God who turned their hearts back to Him. See, we often think, well, it's just my decision. Left to my own heart, I don't decide God. It is God who seeks me. It's God who turns me. It is the Holy Spirit. And once in Christ, and it is the Holy Spirit who keeps poking me and says, you need to repent on that. The miracle this day, yes, fire did come. It showed His power, His might. It purified people. It turned people back to Him. Fully and completely. Can you see why now? Can you see why the nation of Israel so revered the prophet prophet Elijah? He was a man of God who is willing to stand alone in the power of God. So for you, this week, two things. Know that truth is not dictated by numbers. I don't care what any poll says. I care what God says. His word is truth. And the second thing is to grow in your knowledge of Jesus and His Word so that you too 
may be willing to stand alone. And all the people said, Amen. 